question, what was the best thing that your school lunch ever served? Seriously, write your answer down in the comments below. I'm just really fascinated by this topic. Because at my school, when I was growing up, the cream of the crop was known as cheesy dippers. They were literally just breadsticks with a bunch of cheese melted on them and meat sauce to dip them in. Any other schools out there have those or something similar to that? Because kids went crazy for these things. They showed up on the menu like every other Wednesday and the line was out the door for them. And it always confused me because, you know, they're just breadsticks and sauce. But little did Tot Pat realize at the time that those cheesy dippers, as well as all the other hot dogs, pizzas, and mystery meats that lunch lady Brenda was slopping down onto my plate were part of a grand conspiracy. A cascade of lies and backtalk. So eat up while you can, my friends. After today's episode, you'll never look at lunchtime the same way again. internet welcome to food theory class is now in session that's right friendos it's back to school season and with it comes the return of lunchtime the time when clicks are formed that can make or break your school reputation or you know you could always be like me and reject the entire social hierarchy instead forcing yourself to sit at each individual lunch table one at a time as part of a grand social experiment to see which social clicks respond most angrily to an outsider encroaching on their territory true story that was my eighth grade science fair project the self-classified sport girls wound up being the worst. They threw food at me and they physically tried to lift me out of my seat for the entire hour in an attempt to get me to move. But science moves for no one. I locked my legs under the bench and held on for dear life. And you know what? It was worth it. Them throwing food resulted in me getting some free fries that day. And eventually, I got myself a blue ribbon at the Ohio State Science Fair. So get dunked on there, Mallory, Courtney, Bethany, Catherine with a K, and other Bethany. Today, though, we're not here to talk about the social politics of the lunchroom. We're talking about the food politics of the lunchroom. You see, school lunches have been in the news a lot over the last few years. The USDA recently increased funding for school meals. Some states, like Maine and California, are now permanently offering free school lunches for everyone. And of course, the ever-present topic of whether school lunches are healthy enough for kids. Might seem like an odd topic to be a hotbed of controversy, but school lunches and their nutrition are actually one of those issues that have a direct influence on how the next generation grows up. And while I think everyone would agree that healthier is better, the history of school lunches shows just how many competing interests exist in the competition over what little Jimmy is cramming into his pie hole come noon 30, sometime between phys ed and algebra. Case in point, this. A tomato. It's a fruit, right? I think that's pretty well established by now, but for decades when I was growing up, people were confused about that, constantly thinking that it was a vegetable. And their confusion was entirely justified, because, you know what? It was. So was ketchup. So was pizza. Vegetable, vegetable, vegetable. So, how was pizza possibly considered a vegetable? Well, it all began here, in the school cafeteria. So line up and hold out your tray. I'm about to serve up some tasty history so you can start to understand the conspiracy behind the slop that students get served. You see, the origin of America's nationwide school lunch program actually dates back to 1946 when it was considered to be a matter of national defense. No joke. Well, it's true that some schools in the U.S. did offer their students food as early as 1894. It didn't become something that public schools were legally required to do until the passage of the National School Lunch Act. This was right after World War II. And during the war, they found that a large number of 
enlistees who could have otherwise been eligible for service ended up being disqualified due to their poor nutrition. Yeah, apparently the thing that got the government to stand up and make feeding kids a priority was realizing that emaciated Americans wouldn't be able to die for their country. So instead, they decided to feed them up and then ship them out. But regardless of the reasons that actually got the thing to start, people immediately drew a liking to it. Parents across the nation were more than happy to take a break from slapping together some PB&Js, so school lunch programs got bigger throughout the rest of the 50s, 60s, and 70s. There was the school breakfast program, the child and adult food care program, the special milk program. You know what, I'm just gonna come out and say it, there's something I inherently don't trust about the phrase special milk. But not only did the parents like it, the government did too because it solved another problem that they had. Namely, that the US had itself a surplus of domestic produce and didn't exactly know what to do with it all. I've actually talked about this in a previous theory about America's secret supply of underground cheese, which if you haven't watched, make sure you check out that episode after this one. But basically, school lunches were one place that they could offload a bunch of that extra cheddar. Feed kids will also using up your surplus cheese. Two birds with one Swiss. And cheese was hardly the only example of this. I mean, I don't want to say that the school lunch program was just a convenient dumping ground for all the extra unsold food that nobody wanted to actually buy. I don't want to say it, but you know, a lot of times throughout the history of the school lunch program, it kind of ended up being true. For instance, when the USDA, the US Department of Agriculture, was faced with that dairy surplus, they initially bought the cheese, right, and put it into the caves, and eventually it became part of my cheesy dippers. Fine. But then they had a realization. Hey, those cows that keep producing so much milk that we can't figure out what to do with? Oh yeah, they're also beef. Suspicious look over at the cows, and thus the whole herd buyout program of the 1980s was born. School lunches suddenly took the form of burgers and pizza and anything that could make use of beef and or cheese. So where then does the school lunch conspiracy come in? Nutrition. You see, even though surplus was certainly one driving factor dictating what was and wasn't getting served as a part of school lunches, the other was nutrition. School lunches had to at least be nutritious. And because meal regulations still stated that kids had to be served two full servings of vegetables with their school lunch, everything was just hunky-dory, right? Right? Well, if you've been watching this channel for a while, you know that those who set the definitions around food don't always do so in an impartial way. I mean, our vision of a healthy diet used to look like this, with the grains being the foundation of a healthy, balanced meal. Conveniently, it was also the cheapest type of food to serve up. I mean, I've already done a whole video about the various competing forces that got the food pyramid to look the way that it did, but suffice it to say, for a long time, the guiding principle was eat more carbs. Come to think of it, the food pyramid was created by the USDA, the same USDA that was responsible for the school lunch program in the first place. So the same organization that comes up with the lunches also gets to come up with the nutrition rubric that those lunches need to be graded on. Surely no potential for bias or conflict of interest there, right? Well, in 1979, USDA guidelines were loosened to the point that nutrition standards for school lunch items only had to meet the minimum requirements, rather than the stricter requirements of being quote-unquote officially healthy. So how minimum is a minimum standard? Well, one USDA official is said to have explained it as follows, quote, if a candy bar has only one nut in it, we feel it is above our minimum nutrient standards. In other words, things ain't looking too great. But at the very least, they still had that two vegetable rule, right? That ensured that even though a peanutty baby Ruth might have gotten served up as a side next to your mac and cheese, you at least have some green beans and carrots on the plate to balance it all out. Well, Let's pull up what I said a few seconds ago. Quote, kids have to be served two full servings of vegetables with their school lunch. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to play a game. You see, that's what the regulations said, except it presents a problem. Produce, it's expensive. It's expensive to store at the correct temperatures. It doesn't keep for very long periods of time. It takes varying times to prepare and it needs to be shipped under proper conditions, usually within specific seasons. Remember, we're talking about technology from the late 70s and early 80s to get all this done. As if that wasn't bad enough, 
surveys of school lunch waste repeatedly show that vegetables are the item that kids leave unused and throw out the most often. So in essence, what you're dealing with is the food item that's generating the highest cost and also has itself the lowest return. It's only there because parents expect healthy vegetables to be offered to their kids by the school. It has to be on the menu. The regulations say it. Then again, words can be open to some creative interpretation. So if you're a government agency in the 80s whose funding has just been slashed 30% by the president and you're looking to save money on school lunches while still technically meeting the letter of the law, where in this sentence do you think there might be some wiggle room? That, my friends, is the game we're playing today. I'll give all you budding politicians a second to think it over. And while you're taking that second to come up with an answer, make sure you subscribe to Food Theory. No one else is serving up the bitter truth about the lies in your food. Subscribing is free, and as we all know, brain food is best food. It's also zero calories. All right, you got your responses ready? Great. Solution number one, the word right here, vegetable. Vegetable already has itself a nebulous definition, which is an episode to itself on another day, but suffice it to say that the administration at the time was eager to use that murkiness to their own advantage. In an attempt to meet the letter of the law in technicality, but not necessarily in spirit, the USDA tried to list the ingredients of condiments to help boost up the number of vegetables that were being served to the kiddos in school. Catch up? Well, if you read the label, it says tomato right there. That's a vegetable, right? Count it. Pizza? Well, that's not just any sauce, my friend. That is tomato sauce. Count it. Packets of relish. That right there, friends, is a serving of cucumber. And that is the story of how ketchup almost became a vegetable. Almost. If it seems to you like this school lunch program strategy was a wee bit on the cheaty side, you're not alone. It became a national debate that culminated in Pennsylvania Senator Henry J. Heinz III. Yep, Heinz, as in the Heinz brand ketchup dynasty, apparently the family moved into politics, go figure, delivered a speech from the U.S. Senate floor saying, quote, ketchup is a condiment. This is one of the most ridiculous regulations I ever heard of. And I suppose I need not add that I do know something about ketchup and relish, or did at one time. The New York Times described the whole thing as the emperor's new condiments, and eventually the USDA withdrew what would come to be known as the ketchup proposal. Except we're still playing this game and we haven't solved the problem. We still gotta cut costs while meeting the letter of the law. So let's look again at our sentence. Kids have to be served two full servings of vegetables with their school lunch. If you can't change a condiment into a vegetable, why not try swapping the labels on something else? And that's when they found their new loophole. This word right here, serve. The USDA adopted new guidelines, still largely in use today, based around the offer versus serve model, which is exactly what it sounds like. Instead of being required to serve a certain helping of vegetables, what if school lunch programs were only required to offer a certain helping of vegetables? And since kids were making the choice, they could be safely relied on to decline said offer. The defense of that position is that serving vegetables to kids doesn't do much good if the kids are just going to chuck those vegetables right into the trash. And so this became a major cost-cutting measure. Schools could suddenly keep a bare minimum of produce on hand and justify it in the name of reducing waste by listening to feedback. So was that the end of our ketchup is a vegetable debate? Yeah, at least it was until today. You see, this whole sordid history got me curious. Does ketchup actually have enough tomato in there to count as a serving of vegetables? Like, sure, we're all fine to laugh at how stupid this whole thing was and acknowledge that it was a bit shady as far as cost-cutting measures are concerned. Then again, I've seen the Heinz commercials. They squeeze more than 25 whole red ripe tomatoes into a bottle. So I reached into the fridge and pulled out my bottle of... Uh, do I get 
tomato ketchup? <clears throat> the uh, Heinz tomato ketchup to do some math. Based on info from eatforhealth.gov, a single vegetable serving is 75 grams or one medium-sized tomato. Now, the ad here says that there are 25 tomatoes in a 40-ounce bottle of ketchup. So you would assume that a whole bottle of ketchup is gonna be serving 25 vegetables, right? Eh, not so much. We don't know how big those tomatoes are. They could just be 25 whole red ripe cherry tomatoes. In 2015, Heinz was actually sued in Israel by local ketchup producer Osem on the grounds that they utilized too much high fructose corn syrup in their products, thereby not qualifying for the name ketchup under Israeli nutritional standards. Reports from the case estimated that the amount of tomato in this tomato-based product was between 17 and 39%, depending on the lab that was doing the testing. Luckily, the nutrition label for Heinz is much more helpful than the label for something like pink sauce. It tells us that there are 148 grams worth of tomato to make 100 grams of ketchup. And yeah, that might seem weird to have more tomato for less ketchup, but remember that things lose mass as they're cooked. Anyway, if you had a whole 40-ounce bottle of ketchup, that would be about 15 servings of vegetables. It would also be nearly 1,500 calories to get those vegetables, considering all the extra sugar and stuff in there. We're also not accounting for bioavailability and all that, so take the estimate with a grain of salt. Anyway, a vegetable is a vegetable, right? So in theory, in food theory, by the numbers, you could argue that by grabbing a bottle of ketchup and chugging away, you were potentially satisfying at least the raw materials quotient of getting some vegetables. Then again, remember, when it came to school lunches, the lawmakers were talking about ketchup packets. So how many packets would the typical student need to eat in order to get a single serving of vegetables based on the USDA proposal? At minimum, you're looking at nine. Eight and a third if we're being precise. Hope you brought some tater tots for that huge pool of ketchup. Pizza, meanwhile? Yep, still considered to be a vegetable, actually, if there's enough sauce on it. In 2012, the Obama administration unsuccessfully attempted to raise the minimum veggie requirements back up for the first time in, like, forever. Under guidelines first proposed in 2010 aimed at curbing childhood obesity, frozen pizzas of the type typically served by the slice in school lunches could retain their serving of vegetables title if the sauce quotient was bumped up to half a cup of sauce as opposed to just two tablespoons. Except yet again, people had problems with that. ConAgra, which supplies an estimated 75% of frozen pizza to U.S. schools, argued that over-saucing their product would make the kids not want to eat it, and then they spent $6 million lobbying the government to convince lawmakers of that exact fact. And thus, school pizza remained the dry, bready square that it's been for decades. Or, ConAgra, you could just go the route that my elementary school did and rebrand the whole thing as Cheesy Dippers. No sauce required. Boom! Just saved you $6 million in lobbying the government. In the end, the point of all of this is to show you how tricky school lunches really are. There's always this tough back and forth happening between what parents want their kids to eat, what kids actually want to eat, how much schools and governments want to spend to make those sorts of choices possible, and the companies who are involved that turn a profit over whatever the outcome is. So in the end, just remember this one thing. The next time your mom tells you you need to eat your vegetables, you say back, I need to eat more of this pizza to get enough tomato paste so it adds up to a full serving. If you manage to get away with that one, you're gonna have yourself a great career in politics. But hey, that's just a theory. A food theory. Bon appetit. Or, you know, you could just not worry about any of that using the help of today's sponsor, Ritual. I gotta be honest with you, my diet is bad. It's not quite cheesy dippers every day bad, but it's pretty darn close. A lot of times I'm just grabbing whatever I can on the go with health and nutrition taking a solid backseat to speed and convenience. That's why I choose to supplement my diet using Ritual, the obsessively researched and transparently made multivitamin. And when I say transparent, I mean every definition of the word. Each shipment comes with info on the way that their nutrients are sourced. They're also transparent because, you know, the capsules are transparent. Ritual capsules are also delayed release, which makes them gentle even when you're taking them on an empty stomach. Which again, I appreciate because I tend to skip way too many meals. Personally, I use their Essential for Men vitamin, which contains 10 high-quality nutrients like vitamin A, D, omega-3, 
3, and zinc. But they also have themselves a multivitamin for women, anyone over 50. Heck, there's even one specifically built for teens, so you don't have to worry about getting your nutrients sucking down hundreds of ketchup packets. Also, and this is just a small detail that I'm throwing in here, but I appreciate it, the capsules have a little mint flavor to them, which I like, because normally I hate just the taste of dry capsule in my mouth. And if you're worried about cost, well, it's only a dollar a day to have 10 high-quality nutrients delivered straight to your door every month, no strings attached. So fill in the gaps in your diet and your daily lunches using Ritual, a small step that helps support a healthy foundation for your body. You can get yourself 20% off your first month of Ritual by going to ritual.com food20, F-O-O-D 20, and using the code food20 at checkout. That's ritual.com food20. Never worry about the amount of sauce on your pizza ever again. Until next week, guys. Bon appétit.